As you know, um, different uh, groups of people and different nationalities carry certain reputations. And uh, the British carry certain reputations. The Irish certainly carry a reputation. And sometimes it's not always a positive or wholesome reputation. Um, There is a story of an Irishman in London for a weekend, and he was doing what many Irishmen do when they go to London, and sadly they drink far, far too much. And at about three o'clock in the morning, he was staggering back to the place where he was staying, finding difficult to remember where he was staying. And as he was staggering down the street, he saw on a gatepost St. Paul's Deanery. And he stopped in his steps. And he said to himself, Vigora, St. Paul lives here. We can't believe it. St. Paul lives here. And he had always wanted to meet St. Paul, so he pressed the doorbell. Three o'clock in the morning. The dean of St. Paul's was awakened from a deep slumber, staggered down the stairs, opened the door to find a drunk Irishman standing on the doorstep, and then heard him say, I, I just wanted to call and say thank you. Thank you for that beautiful letter to the Corinthians. <laughs> well, the dean wasn't very impressed, <laughs> and he chased him. He was just settling back to sleep again when the doorbell went a second time. Up he got, down the stairs. Who's standing on the doorstep but the same drunk Irishman? He says, no, I, I'm sorry to disturb you, but did you ever get an answer? <laughs> Isn't it amazing the way the mind ticks, you know? Well, I do not want to follow follow the example of that Irishman except in one thing, and that is saying thank you. And I want to say thank you to the local clergy and church leaders and uh, who invited me to come and share with you this week, and thank you to you as well. I have a real sense that God is doing something here, that there is something significant and important in you coming together, uh, that I have a sense the Lord's wanting you to do more together. He loves his people. He loves the church in Bangor. And he has so much more to do in you and through you. And uh, we pray that this week will be another step forward in God's kingdom purposes for you. Thank you for your friendliness. I have to be honest and tell you, there are some churches we all visit, and it's like going to the Iceland Frozen Food Center. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest about it. I have a little saying that occasionally we meet God's chosen frozen, and uh, (laughs) there needs to be a move of the Holy Spirit and the heat of the Spirit just to do a little bit of melting around the place. And, you know, I was with somebody today, and this is an illustration of how God wants the church to be, and uh, part of what we've been thinking about this week. This man is nearly 90, and he 
is long retired as a school teacher, and he was, we were talking about a particular school which shall remain nameless, and he said, you know, the headmaster in the school was so impressed with the scripture union in the school, and even though it wasn't really where he was coming from, he gave total support to the scripture union. And then he said, and do you know why, Ken? I said, why? Because he said, he as a headmaster saw the difference in the lives of the young people and the school teachers who were in the scripture union group. They made a difference in that school. And it was a positive difference and a good, and do you know, honestly, I said, hallelujah. Isn't that the way God wants his people to live? Whether it's a a Christian union, scripture union group in a school or a local church in a community, that people see there's something different here. And it's not just good, it's the best. And these are people who make a difference. Do you remember I told you God calls us to be mad Christians, M-A-D Christians, making a difference Christians? That's what our calling is. And as you and I seek to live lives worthy of our calling, we will be mad Christians. We will make a difference. And my goodness, if Ireland, north, south, east, and west ever needs to see in the church people who live like Jesus and make a difference, it's now. You know as well as I know, the church has not had a good press in Ireland in the last 20 years. We have a huge challenge. But when we, as professing disciples of Jesus, begin living the way the Lord Jesus wants us to, people see the difference. It makes an impact. I've seen it again and again and again. So thank you, Christians and Bangor. Keep going. Go deeper with God, grow closer to Jesus, be filled with his spirit, and be mad Christians. Not weirdos. That's not what I'm saying. Men and women, young people, boys and girls, who make a difference. Just like Jesus. We see that in John 13, our reading for tonight. Um, where are you? Yes, yeah, so that's good. This is our theme tonight, Upper Room Service. But I want to ask you at the beginning of our thinking together this evening, have you ever had an embarrassing experience? In my humble opinion, and it's not that uh, Bible commentaries I've read uh, tell me this, but I have a sense that when I read John 13, this was a very embarrassing experience for these disciples. And I'm quite sure I'm not the only one here tonight who has had embarrassing experiences. Have you found with embarrassing experiences you never forget them? And I suspect sometimes other people who've been involved never forget them. Like, it's 50 years ago, but I can remember vividly when this happened. If the church building still was standing in Dublin, I could take you to the very spot where this happened. When after a Sunday evening service in St. Luke's in the Coombe in Dublin, I bounced up to this lady and said, I know who you are. You are so-and-so's mother. 
To which he replied, no, I am his wife. <laughs> oh my word. Any young men who are here tonight, please learn from my mistakes. That is one thing. I know the marriage counselors say you should never use the word never, but I'm going to use it. You never, ever, ever make that mistake. Can I tell you, ever since for the last 50 years when I meet somebody who's female, I say, I know who you are. You're so-and-so's daughter. <laughs> you never get it wrong when you say that. Young men learn from me. But I, that embarrassing experience, I will never, ever, ever forget it. And I had a moral dilemma. Because normally the way out of that embarrassing experience is to say immediately, like I was only joking. But I wasn't. <laughs> so there wasn't a way of integrity for me to walk in this particular occasion because, well, enough said. You know what I mean, okay? The point I'm making is I've never forgotten that. Is it is as vivid today as when it happened in the late 1960s. I am quite convinced that certainly Peter and probably some of the other disciples never forgot what happened in this upper room. Remember the context. It was the time of the Passover festival in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples had been traveling. They'd been walking. Their feet were dusty and dirty. They were about to have the evening meal together. And it was the custom in that part of the world, quite rightly, that before a meal, your feet were washed, your hands were washed. And that was the job of the slave or the servant. I've, I remember some years ago uh, speaking at a convention in northwest Uganda, and exactly that happened. I actually found it so embarrassing when some people come in with a basin of water and tiles. They didn't wash our feet, but they washed our hands. And once their hands were washed, the Africans would not shake hands with anyone because those hands were now to be used to eat food. They didn't have knives and forks. They just ate with their hands. So, you know, having clean hands, clean feet before a meal was actually important. But it was the slave usually did this. So they're sitting there, these disciples and Jesus, and the slave or the servant doesn't come in. There's nobody comes and lifts the basin of water or basin and pours the water into it. And I can just imagine Peter sitting there thinking, well, it's about time John did something. You ever been in a group and that's the way we think, you know? Occasionally it might even happen in a church, mightn't it? Never, never, never. And John was probably thinking, you know, Peter talks an awful lot. Isn't it about time he did something? And here they are, they're all sitting in silence. Nobody moves. When's the servant or the slave going to come? They need washed. No one will make the first move. Can you just imagine their embarrassment when the rabbi gets up, the teacher, Jesus? And John couldn't make it clear here. 
clearer. Verse 4, he gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer clothing. He wraps a towel around his waist. He pours the water into the basin. And I somehow suspect every single one of those disciples that night heard the sound of the water going into the basin because they were stunned to silence. And then what does he do? Well, John tells us he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And not only that, but he dries them. That's what John tells us, verse 5. Oh, how embarrassed they must have been. You see, rabbis didn't do that sort of thing. Can you ever imagine Queen Elizabeth washing your feet or washing mine? Wouldn't enter our heads that she would do that wonderful person as she is. That's the slave's job, the servant's job. Is it any wonder Peter protests. Look at what he says. Oh, Lord, are you, are you going to wash my feet? Basically, Peter said, Lord, you can't do that. But oh dear, Peter had so much to learn, didn't he? And Jesus says, Peter, you just don't get it again. Well, he didn't put it that way, but that's what he means. He says, Peter, you do not realize now what I am doing. But later, you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet, Lord. And then Jesus says to him, but Simon Peter, if I, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Do you see what's happening here? There are certain things that only Jesus can do. Have you ever sung that old hymn? I hardly ever hear it these days. Are you washed in the blood? One of the symbols, the meaning of baptism is we're being washed. Washed, cleaned from our sin. We're starting a new life. We're going to be cleaned from now on. The dirt is being washed away, all because of the cross of Jesus. He did it. And Jesus is teaching them here about salvation, giving them a picture of what salvation is all about. It's not about us trying. It's about us trusting. It's not about what we do. It's about what he does and has done for us. The hymn writer got it absolutely right. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only, he only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And indeed, this whole incident, if you think about it as a picture of the story of salvation, Jesus got up from the meal. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He took off his outer clothing. He left the purity of heaven. He took it off, if you like, the perfection. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He came to earth as a human being. 
He went around washing, helping, serving. This is all about service, folks. And then when it was all over, when he had, verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Isn't that what happened at the resurrection and ascension? Back to where he came from, at his Father's right hand. It's a wonderful picture of the story of salvation, and it's all about what Christ has done for us, but it's more than that. It's also talking about the priority of service. Do you remember Jesus put it another way on another occasion? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love that hymn we were singing a few moments ago because it is so, so right. Graham Kendrick nailed it. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the servant king. A king with a difference. He isn't a king driving round in a Rolls Royce with eight bodyguards jogging along beside him, talking into their arm uh, the sleeves of their suits, wearing their big long black coats, wearing their dark sunglasses. That's not our Jesus. No, he wears the clothes of humility, born in a dirty manger. He's the servant king. He's a leader with a difference. He's a king with a difference. He's a king who was crucified. This is our Jesus. And he calls you and I to be like him, to prioritize serving and service. I wonder, is that a priority in your life and in mine? He came not to be served, but to serve. What about you and me? Have you and I come to serve? Are we living to serve? There used to be a cliche, I haven't heard it in years, but I'm about to say it. But I remember hearing some preachers say it many years ago, we are saved to serve. Have you ever noticed how St. Paul describes himself often at the beginning of the letters he writes? Servant of Christ Jesus. That word in Greek is doulos. It means literally slave, slave or servant. You and I are called to serve. And, and friends, that is so counterculture now, isn't it? Because so many people are living today for other people to serve them. Whereas at the heart of our call to follow Jesus is we are being called to serve him and to serve others. I hadn't intended to say this tonight, but actually I think I will now because this had a huge impact on me. When I was Bishop of Kilmore and living in Cavan, we established a link with a diocese in the United States called South Carolina. And in particular, a church near Hilton Head on the east coast of the United States where there's a wonderful man of God who, Chuck Owens is his name, he went to this parish about 24 years ago. When he went there, there were 50 to 60 people in that little sleepy traditional Anglican church. Now there are nearly 2,000 worshipping together at weekends. Chuck is 75, and he's still rector of the parish, going strong, refired, going well. But, you know, he, I invited him to give our clergy some training one time, and I will never forget it. He got a, a flip chart 
out, and he put on what I would call a distorted W, and said, that's a picture of my life. And the top of the diagonal at the beginning of the W was his birth. And that diagonal, if you like, the left diagonal on a W was the first part of his life. Until he was about 28, 29 years old, he was headmaster of a school. He's a very gifted, intelligent man, able man. And when he was in his late 20s as headmaster of a school, he and some of the other teachers of this school in the States decided to bring pupils to Europe. And they did Europe in about 10 days, you know, as the Americans do. Now, wisely on the way back, they planned to have a couple of nights, I think it was in New York, for re-entry. And when they were there, now this is many years ago, all around the city there were these big advertisements, billboards, advertising a Billy Graham crusade. Out of curiosity and for no other reason, the teachers decided to bring all the pupils to the Billy Graham crusade. Who got up, walked out of his seat, and went forward to give his life to Christ? The headmaster. His life completely changed. He said, up until that point, my life could be summed up in one sentence. It's all about me. Do you know anybody like that? It's all about me? But he said, that night my life changed. And from my late 20s, it changed to, it's all about him and me. Big change. And then he continued as a headmaster for many years, and then he believed God was calling him to ordained ministry. He went for selection, was selected, trained, and he said, on the day of my ordination, God spoke to me and my life changed again. He said, I was kneeling at the front of a church the Church of the Ascended Christ. And he said, at the front, was, there were these beautiful stained glass windows, and there was this amazing picture of the Ascended Christ. And he said, I could not take my eyes off the print of the nails in Christ's hands. And he said, I was overwhelmed at God's love for the world and his love for me. And he said, my life changed at that ordination service as I was on my knees. He said, the first part of my life was, it's all about me. The second part of my life, it's all about him and me. But he said, since the day of my ordination, it's all about him and them. Folks, that's God's vision. That is God's vision. You and I like Jesus, are called to do the will of our Father, to serve his purposes, and to love the world, the lost, as he does, as he does. And you know, when Chuck Owen said that at that clergy training day, all kinds of lights came up in my mind, because I thought, you know, those three sentences aren't just about an, an individual What I began thinking was, do you know, those three sentences can summarize many local churches. Just stay with me. Some local churches, the life of that church could be summed up in one sentence. It's all about us. Because that church is like a little private club 
We just want to do what we always did in exactly the same way, and we want to sit in the same places. Don't you dare sit on my seat. I've even been in a church, folks, where somebody was going to sit in a seat, and this person said, no, you can't sit there. That's my husband's seat. The service started. The husband never appeared. He had died several years before. But that was his seat. Nobody was to sit on it. One of the best preachers I ever heard, a man called Terry Fulham, where a mini revival broke out at his church in Darien, Connecticut, he said, now the Presbyterians and the Methodists will not understand this, and the Salvation Army won't understand it either. But he said, you know, in some Anglican churches, we don't so much sit in our pews as defend them. It's true. It's absolutely true, folks. And some churches are all about us, nobody else. The world can go to hell. We don't care. I'm sorry to say it, but that's the way it is. We're not willing to change anything. Some of us are better than that because we're all about him and us. But folks, God is calling us to catch his vision. He wants to do this new thing. Radical Christians marked by generosity, kindness, Christ-likeness, mercy, forgiveness, grace. And we're called to be all about him and them. Loving them, reaching them, serving them, going the extra mile, just like Jesus. You and I are called to serve. Do one of the things that moves me so much is to meet humble Christian people who are faithfully serving Christ 24-7. Their names will never hit the headlines. I can think of a man whose wife had very bad Alzheimer's. He did everything for her. On his wedding day, he had promised to love that woman for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. And that's exactly what he did. At great personal sacrifice. And he did it willingly. Because he loves Christ. Wanted to be like Jesus. I can think of people who visit other people when nobody knows anything about it. They show such kindness and love. I can think of pupils at school who help some of the other pupils that some really don't want to pay much attention to. They have an eye for identifying the lonely. They have an ear for listening to the hurting. They have time for people when others just want to rush by. They've caught a vision of service, being like Jesus. You know, in different trouble spots in the world, there are Christians serving, refugees, people starving. There are people in churches who do things behind the scenes that nobody ever sees, hardly notices, but they do it faithfully 
and they make a difference. They're mad. Because if those things didn't happen, other things wouldn't happen. I can think of a little verse I came across not so long ago, and I was quite impacted by it. And it was this, it takes more grace than tongue can tell to play the second fiddle well. And some of us are called by Lord, the Lord to be second fiddles, not to be in the center of things, but to be second and third fiddles, serving faithfully, being like Jesus, using the gifts he has given us, not greedy for power, not wanting our name in the front of Hello magazine. Oh, who would want that anyway? But anyway, you know what I mean. Don't want to be, have celebrity status. They just want to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ because their lives are all about him and them. Do you know right across the world there are Christians who have caught this vision of service? I'm excited to be a Christian in the 21st century, honestly. We are so privileged to be in the church of Jesus Christ. I want to show you a little short video now, and it's very short, by a man called J. John. Some of you will have heard of J. John, an Englishman who's irreverent. But if this doesn't excite you about the church of Jesus Christ, I do not know what will. Will you let it roll, please? People often say to me, they say, J. John, you know, what, what do you do? Uh, it's always very difficult to know what to say. Because if I say to you that I'm a reverend, which I am, that conjures up certain images in people's minds as to what I might be. So I like to be a little bit creative in telling people what I do. I sat next to this lady on an aeroplane at Heathrow Airport. And I said, hello. And she said, well, hello. And I said, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to Singapore. Then she said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Australia. I said, what do you do? So she told me. Then she said, what do you do? And I said, well... <laughs> I work for a global enterprise. She said, do you? I said, yes, I do. I said, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. She said, have you? I said, yes, we have. I said, we've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. I said, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. I said, we do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. I said, basically, we look after people from birth to death and we deal in the area of behavioral alteration. <laughs> She went, wow! <laughs> and it was so loud, her wow, loads of people turned around and looked at us. She says, what's it called? <laughs> I said, it's called the church. <laughs> If we are a follower of Jesus, wow. then we are part of a global enterprise. But not only is it global, it's intergalactic because it includes everyone that's gone before us. Wow. Isn't that brilliant? 
you ever thought of the church in that way before? We're part of a global enterprise. We're at the forefront of compassion and care right across the world. In countries where there's war, in places where there are refugees and others won't go, in some of the most difficult places in the world, you will find men and women of God. Why? Because they love Jesus, the servant king, and they've caught a vision of serving just like the servant king. And they love people just like the servant king does. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in this story. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a brilliant book by John Stott called The Incomparable Christ. And in it, he tells the story of Father Damien from the 19th century. I don't know if you've ever heard of Father Damien. He was born in 1840. In 1863, he sailed as a missionary to Hawaii, and he was horrified by the plight of leprosy victims. They'd been permanently banished to an island called Molokai. And Father Damien believed God had called him to go and love and serve the lepers on the island of Molokai. They existed there, and I'm not using the word live. John Stott says they existed there in disease, filth, and poverty without family or church to sustain them. And Father Damien went to live among them. He buried their dead. He brought them hygiene. He built churches. He cleaned their water supply. He improved their homes. He built a hospital. He built an orphanage. He trained a choir. He served as their teacher, carpenter, builder, pastor, and friend. And he continued that selfless serving ministry for 16 years until one Sunday morning in 1885 at the beginning of worship, instead of saying, dearly beloved brethren, he began, we lepers. He himself had contracted leprosy, and four years later, he died on Molokai. He was a mad Christian, made a difference, and gave his life, just as Jesus did, for others. One of our daughters and her husband and their two sons some years ago served with a Christian charity south of Mombasa on the coast of Kenya. It's a place where there are hundreds of kids. There's a, an orphanage, a primary school, a secondary school. And uh, <clears throat> for many of those children from a very, very poor part of south of Mombasa, the only good meal they got in the day was the meal they got at school, cooked by big mamas in these huge cauldrons. You know the way sometimes in cartoons you see missionaries being boiled by the cannibals in these big cauldrons? That's what they cooked the vegetables in and the rice in and so on. And we went just towards the end of our daughter's time there, and Linda introduced us to one of the big mamas, Julia. And I said, oh, Julia, this is our daughter, Linda. She said, oh, no. No, she's not Linda. She's an angel to me. And I said, oh. I said, I, man, we're dad. I, I think she's an angel too. Oh, no, but she said, let me tell you about this angel. 
And Julia had huge swollen legs with lots of ulcers and totally unknown to us. We'd known nothing about this. Linda had such a compassion for her that she contacted a nurse friend back home in Nottingham where she lives to tell her about Julia and what could she do. And for months, every week, Linda would go to Julia's house in this poverty-stricken part, get down on her knees and wash her wounds, pray with her. And Julia said, this girl's an angel to me. Just like Jesus. We're not here to be served. We're here to serve folks, whoever we are. And what a power there is in setting that example to people. Isn't it interesting how Jesus finishes this story of the um, washing of the disciples' feet? He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. But he wanted them to get hold of this, and so he says to them, you know, do you understand what I've done for you? Verse 12, I have given you an example. I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Folks, is that how you and I are living? Do people sense something of the perfume of Christ from your life, from my life, from the church here in Bangor? Do they see something of Jesus in the words we use, in our speech, in our actions, in our reactions, in our attitudes, in the kind of people we are? There is such a power in example, isn't there? I've been impacted in recent years reading Paul's epistles. How one of the things that was so used by God, wasn't just the teaching of the apostles, it was the acts of the apostles. It was the way they lived. Like Paul would say to some of those churches, you know how we lived among you. Wasn't just what we taught with our lips, you you saw how we lived. Folks, I don't know if you know this, but people are watching you. And they see in you and in me if we are the real thing or if we're fake news. I would be a really wealthy person, I can tell you. If I got 10 pounds for every time I've heard in Northern Ireland something like this, oh, so-and-so says he is a Christian, but I know what he's really like. What kind of an example are we giving to others? I remember when one of our grandchildren was very small, he he lost one of his little toys, one of his wee cars, couldn't find it anywhere, searched the house. And then his mom saw him disappear behind a settee, and from the back of the settee she heard something she'd never heard this little three-year-old shout ever before, praise the Lord! (laughs) And then the car appeared. And she said, Mikey, what did you say? He said, Mommy, I said, praise the Lord. Where did you hear that? 
Oh, that's what Grandad says when he finds things. <laughs> now, folks, can I just make something absolutely clear? I am not telling you that to blow myself up. I make many mistakes. And sometimes my example isn't what it should be. But can I just say this? Sometimes people are watching us and listening to it. We don't even realize. I had no idea Mikey had ever heard me say that. But he had. And he followed an example. Fortunately, it was a good one. What kind of an example are you and I giving others? Jesus says, hear it again. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. When I grew up in Hollywood, <laughs> there was a gang of us where I lived, and quite often on a Saturday morning, I don't know if you know what even this means, we went to the flicks, the local cinema, because every Sunday, Saturday morning there was something for kids. If we saw cowboys and Indians, what were we on the way home? <laughs> we were cowboys and Indians. If it was Flash Gordon, who were we on the way home? Flash Gordons! We were following the example of what we had just seen. Folks, this week we're focusing on Jesus. And God's calling you and me to model our lives on him, to follow his example, to do what he does, to speak the kind of words he might speak, to be the kind of person he is. And that will make a difference. Look at how... The passage finishes. Jesus said to them, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I pray we'll all go here, away from here tonight, not just to be hearers of God's word, but to be doers. With this I finish, and then we're going to sing again the servant king. We've sung it earlier, but I want us to sing it again really to affirm what we've been looking at tonight and maybe even make some of the words of this hymn our prayer and we'll finish then with In Christ Alone after it. But that hymn of Graham Kendrick summarizes so brilliantly what this teaching in John 13 is all about. But before we sing that, maybe the musicians would come up now just while I tell you this story which will illustrate and underline the priority of service and the power of example a group of businessmen were traveling home one Friday. They went into O'Hare Airport in Chicago in the United States. It was so busy. It was Friday afternoon. They were flying home. There were crowds of people in the airport. And as they were rushing through, one of them knocked against a table on which there were piles of apples which a young girl was selling. And because he knocked against the table, the apples went everywhere. One of the businessmen stopped. And he said to his friends, I'm going to help this girl. If I miss the plane, would you let my wife know? I'll try and be on the next one. And that businessman got down on his knees because that teenage girl was now on her knees, groping around looking for apples. And he was never as glad in his life that he'd done anything as he was now doing. Because he discovered when he was down there, she was blind. And he helped gather those apples, helped her get them back up on the table, as many as they could, helped her rearrange them. 
he noticed that some of them had been bruised by the fall. So he reached into his wallet and pocket, pulled out his wallet, and he gave her so many dollars. And he said, that will cover the animals, apples that have been damaged. The girl was in tears. And then he left her to sell her apples to catch a later flight. And as he was walking away, she shouted a question at him. Do you know what it was? Hey, mister! Are you Jesus? Folks, wouldn't it be wonderful if all over Ireland people looked at you and your life and me and my life and looked at the life of our local churches and they were prompted to ask, Hey, are you Jesus? That's what happens when we begin to live the way the servant king lives.